this evening. Brother Ryan Mitchell will be speaking in the evening service, so I hope that you'll be back and be here with us. For those of you who might be asking, yes, I did invite Stephen to speak this morning, and uh, he declined. Uh, some of you would ask about his speaking, and I told him the next time he came up, maybe he could. But he decided that wouldn't be a good time, and so he didn't, but maybe the next time. I must say, as a, as a father of my son, Scott and Steve, both the boys have studied in ministry. Scott's in current studies, and Steve's gone to um, Heritage Baptist and Pensacola to work in those. And I think that it's one of those things where both the boys could take care of taking care of the pulpit when I'm out, and I appreciate very much their ability to do that. And I appreciate very much their interest in studying the Scriptures. And as a father, I'm very glad of that, very happy of that. This morning in Romans chapter 7, I called your attention to verses 14 and we'll cover all the way, we'll read all the way to 23, though we'll not get that far. But Romans chapter 7 and verse number 14 begins by saying, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. I ask you and ask the question, uh, what dwells in you? That's the message title, and not that titles are important, but this one is, what dwells in you? And for Christians, we'd have probably a list of things that we're certain that dwell in us, but with regard to the text this morning, I thought about this when I was um, driving around over the last week or so when I knew this text was coming up, and I must tell you, sometimes I get lost in thought about people, and that's people in cars and trucks and vans as uh, they get caught in backed up traffic. Brian was talking about backed up traffic. Uh, I came through a location the other day. Traffic was backed up probably two miles or whatever have you. And I caught myself thinking about these people and these vehicles. And I was thinking about uh, what they were thinking, what they were like, what they were doing, where they were going, and what their day had held already and what it was going to hold for wherever that was they were going and when they arrived. People moving in and out of the crowds and mass crowds at that. I, going by the mall one day and my goodness for whatever reason it must have been a sale in one store that they were just throngs of people going in the front door and I, I caught myself thinking about them the same way and though they all by and large see and feel and hear and learn and act and remember and think at at least some degree all the same way I realize again that every single one of them are all different every human being is different and I understand it's not only what's outside and, and those characteristics about our seeing, feeling, hearing, and all that that's similar and almost alike, but there is something very uniquely different about us inside. We have a book in our home, and it's, um, I think it's called I'm Joe's Body. It was written as a Reader's Digest thing. You've seen those. Those are fascinating things to read. In that little book, it tells you that in your body, from the basic and most elementary building block of who you are is the cell. And... And they tell us that in any average person's body, there are 60 trillion of those cells. 60 trillion of them. What this guy Ratcliffe also wrote in that little book is to tell you that no two of them are exactly alike. There's no such thing as a typical cell, they say. Cells are all different. In fact, they are different both in form and function. They're as different in form and function as a giraffe is from a mouse. And they'll tell you that. It also said in that little book from this guy's medical experience, he said every second, every second, millions of cells in your body die. In those same seconds, millions of cells are born. It also indicates, and you'll love to hear this, fat cells, which are the large storage bins of our bodies, reproduce very slowly. I'm glad for that. 
very glad for that. On the other hand, skin cells reproduce every 10 hours. Every 10 hours, the skin cells reproduce. But there's one big exception, and I've called your attention to it before, and the reason is I keep reminding you of it because I remind myself, and that is this. The brain, the moment you are born into this world, has all the cells it will ever have. It never has any more. It has only what it starts with. What's interesting, though, about it is it's constantly losing those cells by wearing out and being damaged. And consequently, that's what we call slow thinking. Or as you get older, you begin to think less ably. Consequently, the brain never gains any cells. It has all it's going to get, and it loses them every day. With all that said, I also came to realize something, though. There is one area in which all of us are exactly alike. Every one of us. Exactly alike. Identically alike. And that is what Paul addresses in Romans chapter 7. What some refer to as this confusing text. It tells us we're all alike. All identically alike. And that thing that it says that we're alike in is that inside of each of us is what is called and what Paul is talking about here in what we call robed language. He's talking about a sin nature. Inside of each of us there is a sin nature. And that's in every single one of us, every person in this room. And in this text, the scripture makes it probably, if not the most classic text on it, is very close to that. Let me show you and point out Paul's evidence of it here. Look at verse number 17, for instance. Romans 7, 17 says, Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. That's in verse 17. He's talking about there the sin nature. Look at verse number 18. In verse number 18, he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. No good thing. He also says in verse number 20, Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. That's verse 20. Look at verse 21. I find then a law that when I would do good, notice, evil is present with me. It's there all the time. Never leaves. Then verse number 23, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. It's important to understand with that read that if you sit here this morning in the New Life Baptist Church and you have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the fact of the matter is that you are totally, absolutely, unequivocally dominated by your sin nature. You're enslaved to your sin nature. I can tell you why you do everything you do. You do it because your sin nature urges you to do it. And may I tell you, you really have no hope of changing that. You couldn't change that if your life depended on it. It is not within man to change his sin nature. It is impossible. So people in this world do what they do because of what people in this world are. Don't ever forget that. You do what you do because of what you are. And, and the fact of the matter is, if you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're helpless and hopeless to stop this slide or, or this sinful, self-seeking pursuit of the things that sin nature encourages you in. It's an impossible thing. But here's the catch. You do what you do because of what you are. And what you are, according to the Scriptures, is you're a sinner. A sinner. What is a sinner? A sinner is someone who is under the dominance of the sin nature, not yet having been rescued by the grace of God. That's what a sinner is. It's someone who hasn't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work to rescue them from the dominance of the flesh and the sin and this sin nature. And this passage the Apostle Paul is dealing with is one that certainly complies with another passage. This one is written in the book of Jude book of Jude. We don't often go there. It only has 25 verses in one chapter, but Jude wrote this. Jude verse 14. Jude 14 says, And Enoch also the seven from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon... Now note the text here, verse 15 and, and 16. To execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, 
walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. What's what I want you to see in the text is, under the inspiration of Scripture, this passage of Scripture tells us that there are people here, and when the Lord returns at some point, there is definitely going to be a case and an issue here that the problem will be all these ungodly people are going to be doing all their ungodly things, and the reason they're going to be doing all these ungodly things is because they're under the dominance of the sin nature. If that doesn't get changed, that's what's going to be when the Lord returns. People just pursuing ungodliness that the old sin nature that dwells in every person is so opposed to doing and able to submit to so quickly and so easily. In this context, too, it's interesting when a person does believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and they are born again, the old Adamic nature from which this sin nature is actually born or comes does not roll over and die. Quite to the contrary. When a person comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the old Adamic nature, the sin nature, may in fact is in a state of dormancy, no doubt, until the law of God comes on the scene. When the word of God is taught and preached, when the law of God is shared with someone, that sin nature that lies dormant, that sin that lies dormant there begins to awaken. And then a war breaks out. And that war is continuous for as long as you're in the flesh. Why do Christian people in this room fight between good and evil, right and wrong, sin and that which is not? Because they've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are no longer under the dominance of a sin nature. But they know enough truth that causes their hearts, their conscience to be aware that that which they do or perceive or concern, concerning themselves do is sinful. And therefore they wrestle with right and wrong, sin and that which is not. And that war, my beloved, never ceases until you go to be with the Lord. So as long as you're in the flesh, the sin nature is going to have a say in what you do. Now, Paul the Apostle is our best illustration of it here in Romans chapter 7 because this passage, and especially from verse 14 to 25, is really his struggle about it. He had the old sin nature. He knew it was there. And what he did was he constantly, continually struggled with his sin nature. And uh, I said it last week, there are, um, there are three kinds of people that uh, do not struggle with a sin nature. Listen carefully. There is the person who is physically dead. They do not suffer, deal with a sin nature. Dead people don't suffer with a sin nature. Secondly, people who are alive physically but dead spiritually. They don't think about it. Everything they do is sinful. They're under the dominance of sin nature. So it's not a trouble to them. Sin's not a problem to them. But the third one is a lying believer. You see, every believer has trouble with sin. Every believer does. And that's evident by here one of the super saints, if you call them that. One of the giants of the scripture, the Apostle Paul, is giving us a heart-wrenching, open-hearted look into his own soul and tells you, here's the struggle I had with it. Here's the struggle I have with it. Presently, he says. Right here, right now. This is written in the present tense. And his indication is, I'm dealing with this in my life right now. And he's saying to you and me, he said, look, this doesn't excuse it. This is not to say that, that this is okay, then go ahead and pursue that sin. That's not what he's saying. What Paul is doing in this text of Scripture is showing you the source from which it comes so you can be on the alert, make sure that you do not follow back under the dominance of sin nature that you were in when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at the text, if you would, verse number 16, where we begin today. Paul starts out by saying in verse 16, If then I do that which I would not, that is, if I'm doing things that I know I should not and things I do not approve, he says, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now, he's not talking that he consents to the law that the thing he's doing is good. He's saying, by the very fact that there's a wrestling match going inside of me tells me that I concur and I consent to the fact of God's Word and what it says is absolutely true. That's what he's saying. He's saying the Word of God is true because it's saying there's a war in here and by my fighting this thing, I can tell you, I can testify to the fact there are sometimes I do that which I know I should not. But the very fact that I struggle with it says I know better. If I know better, where did I get the knowledge? Where did it come from? Not from the sinful flesh. It had to be something outside that got inside. And what was that? The law of God. 
When I was told that thus and such this is wrong, then my conscience was put on guard and alert. If you do this, your heart's going to suffer from this. You're going to feel consciously that this is not right. And Paul said, from the very fact that there's a battle that goes on, that there's a war going on, it tells me that the law of God is good and it is present because I've consented to it by my warfare against my sinful flesh. There was something else that he does in verse number 16. By saying that, he also is defending the law of God. And I mean by that, he's saying, I won't let anybody, I won't allow anyone to think that you can blame the law of God for the struggle that's in a believer's life. He said, that's not, that's not true. But yet we've already found that, that the law of God reveals sin. We found that over in the early part of chapter 7. We also found that the law of God revived sin. You see, you would not know sin was sin unless the Word of God, the commandments of God said, this is wrong. You wouldn't know, you wouldn't have a clue that it was wrong. God's the one that sets the standard of right and wrong, good and bad. And he says, you would have not known what it was had it not been that. But also, he says it revives sin, remember? You can be a Christian and it, it, you may be, you're getting along and merrily going down the river in a canoe and everything's hunky-dory until somewhere along the way somebody preaches a sermon and boy, they steps on your toes, we say. What they did was they revealed a truth to you to which you were guilty and inside of you now there's a war going on because you heard the law of God. What happened? Law of God revived the sin that's in your heart. It got stirred up. Remember the illustration about a man in a room where it's dusty? You can take a broom and sweep it all you will, but you'll not get all the dust out. What you do is you stir it up. And when the preaching of God's Word takes place, it stirs up sin that lies dormant in our hearts that the sin nature wants to keep dormant so you won't address it and won't move from it. Remember, sin, nature, enjoys the atmosphere of sin. The Spirit does not. And there again lies that battle that is drawn, the battle lines that are drawn, and the war that's fought over the issues of that thing. In our day and age, and in our godless culture, when someone blows the whistle on a person who has done some wrong, we usually kill the messenger in America. We usually defame them, disgrace them, and then we usually elect the other guy president. That's what we usually do. In our day and age, in our godless culture and system, any law that offends people's wicked behavior, we have people who simply ignore it, like the mayor of California, in okaying and carrying out those homosexual same-sex marriages. That's wrong, and now the Supreme Court of the state of California says it's wrong. It was wrong long before they said it was wrong. It was wrong when God pinned it in His Word that this is an abomination to God. That's when it was wrong. And the fact of the matter is that in our society, however, sometimes enough of these pagans and their godless reasoning and their political maneuvering get the laws repealed so that wrong becomes right. That wrong becomes right. But that's only on the books in this country. In the annals of heaven, there is no such change and there is no such appeal or repeal. I was uh, sharing even with a church on Wednesday night. That's exactly why the ACLU and others want to get God out of our society. They think that no God means no one to answer to. And so they want to change the laws and try their best to eliminate God from every aspect of our society. And the ACLU will just be wrong in one point. You cannot eliminate the God of heaven by writing new laws in America. And let me tell you something. If you ever thought the ACLU was a good organization, you have absolutely been brainwashed. An organization that gets started from a communist base and thrives in America on the idea and its, its soft-pedaled statements of trying to defend your liberties when everything they have done have robbed us of our liberty and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Almighty God. And I say this to you this morning, that no money from your pocket or your account ought to ever go to help those people. Because what they're working for is a godless society. If they can get God off the map, if they can get God out of the picture, and if they can get God off the radar, then they think they can do anything they want to do, live any way they want to live. There's one problem. God is a spirit. And he is everywhere. And so consequently, they can't eliminate him. You can shoot in the dark with all the guns you've got. You'll never hit God. You'll never hit him. He will be always present. 
And he'll always be working, and he's never in any set of circumstance ever faced an emergency and never will. You see, the problem is with man. It's not with God. And the problem is with man's sin nature, and it's not with God's laws. You see, they're trying to change all the laws so we get rid of God. The fact is, it's not in that. It's in man. And if the ACLU and all the other kind of groups could understand, it's man that's the problem here. It's not God. It's us. It's what's inside of all of us. That's the problem. Did you realize that'd be, and, and Brian talked about it this morning and explained it well from our, our New Testament, the, the fact of the matter is if people could come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and understand that what the Bible teaches concerning believers and their behavior, if everybody would do that, every person would come to faith in Christ and then follow the patterns, the characteristics that are supposed to be that of Christian, you'd be amazed what there would not be. There would be no more murder, no more stealing and cheating. The IRS would never have to worry about anybody else cheating on their taxes. Uh, you, Walmart wouldn't have to have these officers who have to watch people stealing stuff, taking stuff out of the building without paying for it. There'd be none of that. Why? Because people would be acting like Christians if, in fact, they were. That's why you go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Why? Because I'm telling you that the only way to change the world is change the heart. And trusting Christ as Savior brings up something that can equalize the sin nature. And it's only the Spirit of the Lord. It is only the Spirit of the Lord. When the Spirit of the Lord indwells a believer, it's the only thing that can counter the sin nature that each of us have. There's nobody in this room going to do right by your own efforts. You need help. You can't get saved without God's help, and you can't live the Christian life without God's help. And the good news is He gave you His Spirit that indwells you, lives with you, and the Holy Spirit is the author of the Holy Scriptures. Who knows it better than He does? So when they're taught, He speaks, you understand, you obey, life gets better for you. Oh, I'm not telling you everything will be fair. There'll be a lot of things against you that won't be fair. But again, this is just a little capsulated picture. There's a big picture issue of which we're involved. So Paul's point here in this context is to say, don't blame the law. That's not the problem. Paul is saying it's not the law, but it is man. It is man's nature. And in this case, he says even if he does not approve and does those things that he doesn't approve of, and he, that he would not, he, he's saying in essence in verse 16, I'm still taking sides with the law of God. At least the new creation part of him is taking sides. By the way, the very fact that Paul in, in somewhere in his heart and his life, his desires are not to do these sinful things. It proves and indeed underlines the fact that he, uh, his spirit, the Holy Spirit that indwells him, has prompted his conscience to be aware that there is a standard to which he's held accountable. And that's true with everybody in this room. You see, I said and said often here, and that is that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have absolutely no right to put anything into that body that violates God and His character. And smoking, drinking, drugs, anything and everything. And overeating, anything else that does anything to the body you live in. That's not your body. You are not your own. What? You're bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify your body. Glorify God with your body which He gave you. And by the way, just as surely as you stand accountable for everything else you do in your Christian life, you stand accountable for what you do with the body He gave you. The illustration is the same. Christ Himself said the Father gave me a body. What was the purpose? Because Christ was going to die on the cross. And so He needed a certain kind of body in a certain way. And God the Father prepared for me a body that would fit this situation. God did the same for you. He gave you a body that fit the service to which He wanted you to involve yourself. And he does not want you, me, or anybody else who calls themselves Christians to abuse these bodies or to do anything to them or with them or in them that's going to make any kind of reproach on his name. And yet we do it all the time. And there again, it's why the world's lost confidence in Christians because we do all the things they do, the pagans, and then turn right around and try to make ourselves different. You can't have it both ways. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's only true if you comply with the law of God. It's not true if you just sort of stand back and say, Well, I'm saved. I'm on the way to heaven. And, and we'll just let things happen as they do. No, no, no. You need to address in your life, as I have to in mine, anything in your life that's contrary to what God's Word says in regard to what He's holding you accountable for. 
And I say to you this morning, Paul the Apostle is drawing that conclusion here that the law of God is not bad, it is good. And the very fact that I have a sense of what's right and wrong shows me that God's law is a good thing. Look at verse 17. He goes a step further. What is the problem then, Paul? If, if it's not the law of God, if that's not what stirs up the dust, if that's not a problem, what is verse 17? Now then, it is no more I that do it, but the sin that dwelleth in me. The sin that dwelleth in me. That's the sin nature. And again, I tell you to perish the thought that you think Paul is somehow trying to excuse his sinful behavior and his doing things that he does not approve. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing here is tracking down the source of this sinful behavior. Where did it come from? Why does it keep rising up in me? Let me take you to a New Testament epistle. This one is in 1 John chapter 1. Paul agrees with 1 John's epistle that is written by John. When you come to chapter 1 of 1 John, look at verse number 6. 1 John chapter 1, verse number 6. John writes these words. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. By the way, cleanseth us in the tense in the case here indicates a goes on, keeps on cleansing us from sin. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing you from your sins, those sins that you may commit and not be aware of, as it were. Verse number 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, verse 10 says, that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's a simple way of saying everything Paul said over in chapter 7 of Romans. John is saying you have a sin nature. And if you start going around denying all that, you're deceiving yourself. You're crazy. You're nuts. You have a sin nature, and the faster and the quicker you come to face it, the better off you'll be. In verse 8, for instance, when he says we have no sin, that's a sin nature. We have a sin nature, and if you say you don't, he's saying, in this context, if you say you don't have one, you deceive yourself, and the truth's not in you. But he also says, if you say, in verse number 6, if we say that we uh, have fellowship with him, while at the same time we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. We lie and do not the truth. Then he goes in verse number 10. He has another one of those if we say things. He says, if we say, verse 10, that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Make him a liar. That's the strongest of the language in the text. It's not just that you deceive yourself. You actually call God a liar. You make him a liar if you hold to that idea. I say all that to say this. The reality is that every true believer, every true believer... And I have to emphasize that because you know full well there are some pseudos out there. Some guys, some women, some boys, some girls, some young people who stand up and they'll give testimony flowing from ear to ear, slobbering like a duck, and say, Oh, man, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. And live like the devil. But if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You do not get saved to go back into what you got saved out of. When Israel got rescued from Egypt... She was not rescued from Egypt just to go over to the Amorites and live with the devils and the idols that they had again. That was not what God saved her out for. And that's exactly the case with God's people. He didn't save you so you could go back and do whatever you want to do. He made you a new creature in Christ Jesus so your life would change and reflect the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a believer, when I don't reflect that, I not only reflect poorly on Him, but literally from 1 John's passage, I make Him a liar. I make Him a liar. I go around telling people that I'm saved and I, I you know, give testimony to that end when in reality in my life I know full well I have no fellowship with Him. It might be like you talking about you knowing the Lord and yet not picking up His Word all week long. I for one would have a real serious problem with that. You see, I don't believe you're healthy if you don't eat. And if you went all week and you didn't eat anything from your table unless you were fasting and it was a biblical fast and you committed yourself to that, I, I, I would be very hard-pressed to believe that you're healthy. I have the same problem believing you're healthy spiritually if, in fact, you didn't pick up the Word this week. I have the same problem with people who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't take time to pray. You know, God's in God and He's just going to take care of them. I don't have to pray. <laughs> you obviously have not read the New Testament. Pray without ceasing. 
pray without ceasing. I said it in a Wednesday night service. I repeat it again. Prayer says to the, to the Lord, to everybody who listens or knows us, when you pray, you understand your dependence upon Him. When you don't pray, you're saying, hey, I don't need God. I can run this thing very well. I am doing a good job. I'm getting a paycheck. I'm staying healthy. I'm enjoying life. Everything is hunky-dory. That's what it says. But I remind you, God doesn't always pay on Friday. Payday comes. Results of sin always come. Always come. It may be a disease that clamors up in your body and takes the very life out of you, or it may be some circumstance of life that tears your heart from your bosom. But it'll come. And I'll tell you now, the chastening of the Lord is not pleasant for the moment, but it is an essential absolute for all those who know Him. It will come. And consequently of that, I remind myself as I remind you of what Paul wrote to the church of Galatia. I read it once in our sessions concerning this passage, and I read it again to remind you and myself. Chapter 5 and verse 16, Paul wrote, he said, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Remember, you have a sin nature inside of you. If you've been born again, you've got the Holy Spirit that indwells you. And he's saying, you always come down on the side of doing what the Spirit wants to do. You live in light of and in accordance and in sympathy and in a coordination with what the Spirit says. And if you'll do that, you won't have to worry about, verse 16, the lust of the flesh. Oh, they'll be there. They'll come and they'll go. But the fact is, if you'll always come down on doing that which the Spirit encourages... He says it won't be the battle that it will be otherwise. Verse 18 or 17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are the contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Did you hear that? You cannot do the things that you would because there's this battle inside of you going on. You, you want to do one thing, you end up doing the other. Why? Because there's the war that's going on. By the way, the word against in the Greek is a Greek word that means to put down. The word and the reading of that and translating it into chapter number 5 of Galatians, verse 17, could read thus. The flesh desires to put down the spirit, and the spirit puts down the flesh. And that's exactly what it is. Either the spirit is putting down the flesh, or the flesh is putting down the spirit. Back to Romans chapter 7, look at verse number 18. In verse 18, Paul takes it a step further. For I know... And I've encouraged you always to note those. He wrote this in verse 14, for we know. And then in verse 18, I know. That is, I know in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Keep something in mind here, and I admit I had some challenges with it at first, but you must keep it in mind and in the forefront when you read this text. Keep in mind that in me, in verse 18, you see the phrase, in me, verse 18, is not the same as the I in verse 17. Now, that may seem obvious to some of you who study the Scriptures, but if you're not careful, the me's and the I's you're going to think are all the same, and they're not. The me in, in verse number 18, where he says in verse number 18, in me is the old nature, the sinful self. When you read of this verse 17 and he talks about I, he's talking about the new creation in Christ Jesus. There's a distinction here that's very clear, homiletically and hermeneutically. It is clear that there's a distinction in these. And don't you get them confused. Don't you say, well, they're all the same thing. No, it's not. It's not that this guy's a schizophrenic or, or a double personality kind of person. He's a saved man with a sin nature. And what that incorporates is that there is inside of him an understanding. There's one side of him that wants to do this, and one side of him wants to do that, but he's the same person. And uh, I say to you, that's what you have to watch out for when you deal with this matter. And every believer, if we could just get a grip on this, that in our flesh, our old Adamic nature, which works through the body, dwells absolutely nothing. There'd be several things that would be resolved. One, it would be the big thing is that we would be less occupied with ourselves less occupied with ourself. Self-centeredness, self-intoxication, which our society is so badly, badly involved with. Self-intoxication. I have never met so many people in my life that are self-intoxicated. I mean, all they think about is self. They don't think about anybody else. They don't care about anybody else. They're selfish, self-centered. And by the way, that's one reason why marriages are going down the tube at an alarming rate. See, marriage is other person-centered other person centered 
That's no problem. That's just the ice cream truck. We'll stop it in a minute. You can have all you want of that. That's no big deal. Anyway, the point is, is it very simply puts it out this way. It says, in my case, your case, in everybody's case, that people who have and understand that they are under the sin nature dominance, I'll tell you exactly what they want to do. They look out for self. Every move is what's good for me. What do I want? How can you help me? What can you do to move over to give me more room? And by the way, those are the kind of folks, excuse me now, these are the kind of folks who get into road rage problems on highways. Road rage people. You say, hey, pastor, I get in road rage. Then, my friend, you're letting the sin nature dominate you. Because what you think is nobody has more rights than you do. I have more rights. They ought to get out of my way. They ought to clear off. They ought to get over the side of the road. If they're just going to go 20 miles an hour, they ought to go. Look, I'm, I grant you there are folks out there who don't know how to drive. I grant you that. I've met some of them. I've read with some of them, ridden with them. But let me tell you something. They have a right to. And you and I have no right to somehow press or suppress their rights. So when you drive through some place, you just remember this. You have rights, but they have rights. If they happen to get in the fast lane and they happen to go a little slower than you think they ought, I'll, I'll tell you something. Most of those people who drive there and drive 20 mile an hour, their hearing aids are turned off. You don't need to honk. You don't need to get up on their bumper. They can't see there's no need. All they're doing, they're programmed. We're going to go up this road here, turn left. And they just programmed. And they're not going to get out of there. So you might as well either go over and go around. Did you know some folks won't pull over in the right lane and go around them? Why? Because sin nature says, I don't have to do that. They ought to move out of my way. Well, boy, you talk about arrogance. But you know what that is? That's somebody who is dominated by the sin nature. That it has to be my way everywhere and always. And I won't be happy unless it is. Notice something else. The last part of verse 18 this is important. Verse 18, the latter part. He knows that in his flesh there dwelleth no good thing. By the way, you'll do well to know the same thing. But notice, to will is present with me. My problem is how to perform that which is good. I can't do it. And really, that's the whole crux of uh, Romans chapter 7. Somebody likened this into a man who is casting an anchor inside of his boat. You know, you, you got this boat and it's drifting around all over the place. And so what you do, you have your anchor inside the boat and you're supposed to put it out into the water. And it'll keep the boat from wandering around on the waves. Somebody said, no, what this is like is like taking that boat and simply putting this boat or putting this anchor inside this boat and thinking it'll do some good. I'm simply saying to you what this passage of Scripture is saying. Paul said, I have a desire to do right, but I confess to you I don't have the power to perform the right. I need some help. Verse 19, then he comes back with, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but the sin or the sin nature that indwelleth me. By the way, that's almost a complete, perfect reiteration, restating of verse 16 and verse 17 of what he said there. Let me close the message quickly with this. Paul was in agreement and would remind us of something that he wrote to Titus. Let me turn you to Titus chapter 2 as we close this message. In Titus chapter 2, Paul wrote this. Chapter 2, verse 11. He said, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, Looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all, all, all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. And let no man despise thee. Look at the word denying. It's found in verse said verse number twelve, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. The Greek word for denying, the English word denying, comes from a Greek word that means to contradict, to disavow, to reject, or to refuse. When you put it in the context of what the verse says, verse number 12, when we hear Bible teaching, 
And then we start denying these things what they want. That is, when the flesh rises up and it wants to do something, and we start denying that, what do you think would happen? A war breaks out. A war breaks out. And the war that breaks out is the war between the sin nature and the Spirit of the Lord and indwells that believer. In verse number 14, it reminds us that Christ redeemed us, and it says, from all iniquity, every bit of it. Verse 14 states that, and he also, without stating all the premise here, he made provisions for us to be purified unto himself. That's what we call sanctification. We're sanctified. We have a positional sanctification, and we have a practical sanctification. The positional sanctification is you're declared holy in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're robed with his righteousness. And in that is what the Father looks and sees. And when he sees that robe of righteousness, he's not looking for the good that you've done. He's looking for the robe of his son's righteousness. That's salvation. So that's why you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments to go to heaven. That's not what it's about. It's not about you being baptized to go to heaven. It's not about joining church. It's not about being a good person. They may or may not be any good people in heaven. I don't know. I know the only people who will be there will be saved. And those who are saved are saved in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in works of righteousness which man have done. So it's not what you do, it's what Christ did. And that's why it all comes back to faith, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, not shall confess with thy mouth all the good works thou hast done, and thou keeps a journal of all your works, and make sure you can show them to God when you get there. That's not what he said. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Didn't say anything about you being good. Didn't say anything about you being holy. Didn't say anything about you doing all these wonderful works. What he says about it is all on Jesus Christ, what he did. And that's why it's simply childlike faith that brings you into a right relationship with God. When that right relationship is had, Jesus Christ through the Spirit of the Lord moves in to indwell you, lives with you. And the battle then begins between your old nature and your new nature, which is led by the Spirit of the Lord. Then in chapter 3 of Titus, very quickly, in verse number 1, he says, chapter 3 of Titus, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Verse 2, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawler, but gentle showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves, verse 3, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. Verse 4, notice carefully. But after that the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. I tell you, that's an exciting verse of Scripture. It's to say, I was just like they were. I was foolish, and I did the things they did. But I have now been changed. But when the, in verse number four's case, but after the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward men appeared, everything changed. Question is, have you come to know this Lord, this Savior? Is Jesus Christ your Savior this morning? Oh, I know you know or should know that you have a sin nature. Now do you know you have a Savior to take away your sin? Someone who doesn't eliminate the sin nature in any of us, but... He makes it so we can live the victorious Christian life. Choir, the song that the trio sang about, we're more than conquerors. And that's through the Lord Jesus Christ, not through the flesh, not through your abilities or mine, but through God, His Son, His Word, and His Spirit. I want to say something. I want you to take it carefully. I heard only a small portion of the funeral services this last week for this um, fallen police officer in Indianapolis. But I heard some very disturbing things that were stated that I must challenge. And I'd be less than what I should be as a pastor if I didn't. But I want it to be known and understood fully that nothing I'm saying is against that officer or any policeman or any sheriff's deputy or any state patrolman. They're all underpaid and overworked and I think underappreciated. 
and I appreciate them and, and have some dear friends who are and family members who are, and I deeply appreciate their work. So this is not a statement against them. It's a statement against what people said about them. First off, my concern is with a statement that one man made at the funeral services of that officer when he made the illusion that one person made or he made this statement that his good works, talking about this officer that died, his good work in the line of duty merits his getting into heaven. That is absolutely not true. It is absolutely not true. As much as I respect and appreciate every fallen officer and every fallen soldier and every fallen volunteer who tried to save somebody's life, that does not merit heaven. Heaven is not on a merit system of what man can do. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. And I remind you, whether the good works are for the state or whether they're done for the church, they don't merit salvation. This officer did not, if he went to heaven, get to heaven because he was a worker and a hard worker in a police department of Indianapolis, Indiana. That's not what caught it. Secondly, the statement made and the words were spoken, and I quote, the head officer had entered heaven because he had already been to hell. It's not true. He was referring to the battle zone in which the officer died. That's wrong again. Hell is not a state of mind, nor is it a city in the city of Indiana or the state of Indiana. Hell is not a place here on this earth. Hell is a prepared place for the devil and his angels, but where all people who reject Jesus Christ as Savior go until they're permanently placed in the lake of fire. That's what hell is. And it is a real place. It is as real as the streets of Indianapolis. But as bad as Indianapolis is, it's not hell. As much as the worst scenario of cases you've ever lived through in your life, they're not hell. Hell is a prepared place for unprepared people and for the devil and his angels. And if you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I hate to tell you, but I must, that's where you'll end up. And it's not what you say, it's what's real. I mean by that. It's not a matter of you just saying, I'm saved. It's a matter of you saying what God says about you. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not a single one. And unless we repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work, we'll not make it to heaven. If you keep hanging on to what you're trying to do to be good and great and wonderful, heaven will not end up being your home. And that's the irony of it. Heaven is a good and wonderful place, but it's not for good people. It's for saved people. It's for people who have the righteousness of Christ. And they only get that by childlike faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you're here first and foremost, you've never believed on Christ as Savior and you're uncertain that if you died in this service, you'd go to heaven, I invite you to come and allow someone to take a Bible and show you from the Scriptures how you can be born again. If you are saved and you are on your way to heaven and yet you recognize within your heart there's this battle going on and oftentimes you may even feel you're losing it, let me urge you to understand a couple of things. One, you're not alone. Paul was facing it and fighting it in chapter 7. But two, you don't have to lose it. The victory is in the Lord. It's not in your flesh. It's not in your ability to fight back. It's in your dependence upon the finished work of Christ and what He can accomplish in your life when you walk in the Spirit so that you'll not fulfill the lust or the desires of the sin nature. This morning, I hope you understand what dwells in you. Both the sin nature and the Spirit of the Lord, if you're saved. If you are, then let me urge you and encourage you to enjoy the victories that's yours already in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for the opportunity we have again to be under its influences. We recognize this morning that there are people in this auditorium who may not know Christ as their Savior, may have not been born again. If they die where they sit and if they were to leave this building in a state of death, it would be a matter that they would stand before you and they'd have no righteousness that comes through Christ. They would come for the, with a righteousness that they think they've earned, that they've tried to work out, they've tried to accomplish in the flesh. And we know that nothing in the flesh will satisfy your demands for righteousness. And therefore, it is only a righteousness that Christ provides that he's looking for. So I pray right now that you'll help every person in this room to take an inventory and decide right now, what is it that I think is going to get me to heaven? Is it my own efforts? Or is it the finished work of Jesus Christ? 
and my faith in it. I pray right now, speak to hearts, work in lives, and deal with us according to your mercy. Bring forth the fruit that you've ordained for this hour. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? 282 in your hymn book. If God has spoken to your heart, we invite you to come this morning and allow someone to speak with you, talk with you concerning your need. If you're without Christ or you have questions about your relationship with Jesus Christ, we'd be honored to sit down with you, talk with you, and share with you. Men and ladies of our church are ready and prepared to talk with you about your need and to assist you and help you in any way we can. But it takes first a step from you to make that indication. So that's what this is. This is an invitation. We're inviting you to act upon what you've heard. And if you have need of help and assistance and counseling, that's what we'll share. So as we sing 282 verse 1, you simply obey the Lord. As we sing, you come. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Verse number two. Just as I am with not to rid my soul. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Bow your heads with me, please. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for your goodness, your grace. We thank you for working in our hearts and our lives and Thank you for the salvation that you've brought us and brought us in Christ. And we thank you that it's a eternal and permanent salvation. It's not a temporary one, and it's not one that comes by installments that we keep up. We are grateful that you paid the full and complete price for our salvation. It's ours. No strings attached. What's important for us is once we come to know you, that you put a new spirit in our hearts, new attitude in our minds. And that is to honor you and glorify you and reflect you in a Christless society. So I pray this morning that you'll help every believer in this room to go out of here and reflect Christ. May we show others what Christ is like by virtue of how we operate, how we function, both in our attitudes and our action. So I ask for your help now. We can't do this alone. And the sin nature makes it even more difficult. So help us this week to walk in the Spirit that we would not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Guide our steps, our lives, and may they rebound to your glory. Thank you for all who are present, our visitors, our guests, our friends, and our members. Please bless them as they leave here. Bless Ryan as he opens the scriptures to us tonight. Prepare our hearts for that message. And once again, move in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed.